If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of John chapter 3. John chapter 3, 31 to verse 36. Been walking, obviously, from through the Gospel of John, and I don't. Uh, well, anyway, we can turn down that light. I feel like I'm being blinded. Thank you. I've been kind of walking sec- uh, section by section, and some of you, kind of jokingly, been wondering. Uh, you know, when are we, uh, are we ever going to make it to John 4? <laughs> and we will, actually, from John 4 and onward, we're actually going to be taking big chunks. Like, for example, next week we'll be, talking, we'll be going through John chapter 4, verses 1 through, like, 42. And so I tell you that because it will be a two-hour sermon. I'm kidding. So John chapter 3, verse 31 to 36. It says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, you only speak the words of God. And the words of God are written for us here in our scriptures. So help us, Lord, this morning to see these words as your very words, not the words of John the Baptist or John the Apostle, even though he's the one who's written them for us. Essentially, he is not the one who is speaking to us this morning. You are the one who is speaking to us today. So help us to receive your word and what it tells us about who you are and about Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Supreme. By definition, it's a word that means having power over all others. It means greatest, it means excellent, it means most superior, it means highest, extreme. Just think of how many things in the world would you describe as being supreme? My guess is probably not a lot of things because supreme by definition means that it's, it's highest, right? That there's nothing that surpasses that which is supreme. But it doesn't stop people from identifying things as supreme, right? There's supreme clothing, 
their supreme fireplaces, their supreme bikes, supreme tacos even, this even supreme cannabis, which I wouldn't know anything about and neither should you. And there's even supreme towboats. When you describe something as supreme, you're making a very bold statement. That is that this is the best of the best and that nothing can ever surpass it. But there will always be something better. There will always be better fireplaces, better towboats. There will even be better tacos. And so when something is surpassed, it means that that thing was never really supreme to begin with. Because to be supreme means that you, it's unsurpassable. Today, as we walk through the passage, I hope to show you the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Now, we can give, we can kind of spot out a lot of different reasons why Jesus is supreme, but the passage this morning kind of, it gives us specifically two reasons why Jesus is supreme and unsurpassable. And first, we see the supremacy of Jesus Christ through the Father's affirmation of his Son. And second, through the Father's affection for the Son. So verse 31 says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. So verses 31 to 36 are the author's own comments. Right, last week we read through 20, uh, down to verse 30 of chapter 3, and that was, that was just, that was where, John's words, John the Baptist's words, but John's, John's words end. And now what we're reading are the author's own comments and what he's doing for verses 31 to 36. He's kind of summarizing Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. And he's also giving us this theological interpretation of the person of Jesus Christ and the person of John the Baptist. The one who belongs to the earth is in reference to John the Baptist. So verse 31 is actually a significant contrast between these two individuals, and it is a contrast of, of limitations. So verse 31 has to be read in context of verse 30, where it says, where John the Baptist says, he must increase, that is Jesus, but I must decrease. So verse 31 is a further explanation of why John the Baptist must decrease. John is from the earth. He can only speak in a human way. He who comes from above, on the other hand, is above all, and that is Jesus. John's ministry was given to him by God himself. That being the case, the scope and the magnitude of his ministry is limited ontologically, meaning by his very being. At the end of the day, John is only a human being. He's no different than you and I. He can only do and know and understand so much. And what he can understand and do is limited by his humanity. And what's fur and further is that he is a sinner like you and I. There's nothing about John that makes him exempt from that salvation. John the Baptist himself needed that divine salvation from Jesus Christ. So at the end of the day, John is just a messenger, just like the prophets of old, just like Moses, just like Abraham. Although John's message is a better message because he has a, a clearer and much more fuller message than the prophets of old. Which makes his ministry much more significant. But he is still only human. And therefore, no one ought to put their final trust in him because he is, again, just like you and I. He's just another man. 
And one of the things that, one of the fundamental things that, that, uh, that distinguishes what we believe than the faith of other religions is that many other religions in the world tend to put a lot of their weight and trust and faith in individuals who are no different than you and I. Most other major religions put their trust in a human being who receives supposedly some kind of divine illumination or revelation. And even those who have a book that they study and work through, right, have Jesus in their book, but it is not the same Jesus that we believe in. It's not the Jesus that, that is co-equal and co-eternal with God himself, but instead they base a lot of their life and theology and understanding on one person's divine, supposed divine illumination, like John Smith and the Mormons, or like Jehovah's Witnesses trust in Charles Taze Russell and his kind of disagreements, many disagreements with historical Christianity and the Bible. Now I can kind of see, someone might say that that there's some similarities between these individuals and John the Baptist. First, John himself received divine illumination right from the heavens. He received a revelation and he proclaimed that message. But what's different about John the Baptist and other individuals in history who supposedly received divine illumination is that the, the message that John the Baptist proclaimed was authenticated when that message itself became incarnate and took on human flesh. And that is why John must decrease and Jesus must increase. The message of salvation, the very message that John was sent to proclaim, that message came from heaven, took on flesh, and that message himself became his own interpreter. So then there was no longer any need for John the Baptist. So then when you are talking to the very message of God, when you are hearing from the very message of God, it is to hear God himself. It is to talk to God himself. To see Jesus, to see this divine messenger is to see the very face of God. And he is without limitations. And when he speaks, he speaks life. And his, and his words have the power not only to, to heal people and to raise the dead back to life, but his words have the power to penetrate into the darkness of the human heart and call the sinner into himself for their salvation. So verse 31 focuses on the, the limitations of John the Baptist and the limitlessness of Jesus Christ. Verses 32 to 34 focus on the message of Jesus. 32 says, He, that is Jesus, bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. So from now on in the rest of the passage, John the Baptist no longer is a part of the picture. Every time you see the personal pronoun he, it's in reference to Jesus Christ. With the exception of verse 34, which is in reference to God. But at this point, we're no longer about talking about John the Baptist. The witness that the passage is talking about is the witness of Jesus. In fact, John the Baptist practically disappears after John chapter 3. And you only hear about two just passing references to John by, John, by Jesus himself and the, and the crowd. But in a, in, a, in a book that's 21 chapters long, already three chapters in, John the Baptist just kind of disappears 
after that, kind of continuing to show that John must decrease and Jesus must increase. Jesus comes with divine revelation because he is the divine revelation from God. Hebrews 1 verse 1 tells us that long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, an exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. John 1.14 tells us that the divine word of God became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glorious of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the divine revelation from God, Jesus, who has insight knowledge of salvation comes from the heavens and discloses to the world this salvation and the world doesn't receive it. And this is similar to John 3, 19. You might remember when we covered it a couple weeks ago. It says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So here is the divine word, the light of the world, the one who far surpasses John, the one who comes from the heavens. And it tells us that people did not believe or accept the divine word. And it's not that everyone without exception does not believe, but the reason why it's written this way is for shock. It's because the world's su su uh, response is surprising. When the one who is without limits comes into the world, one who far surpasses John, the general response of the world is to be repelled. Now we might conclude then that John the Baptist's ministry might actually see, uh, appear to be much more successful. Because if you've been following along through the book of John, if you read the other gospel accounts, John is baptizing people long before Jesus, uh, John before, uh, long before Jesus' ministry begins. John is calling people to repentance, and people repent. You see that in, a, in Matthew's account. But when Jesus enters the scene, and he begins to disclose to the people how to be saved, pointing people to himself, becoming his own interpreter, people, a lot of people, tend to walk away. Right, and you'll see that very soon when we get to John chapter 6 later on. Now, why is that? Right, this is the message of salvation. He has come down from the heavens in the person of Jesus Christ. And so shouldn't more people be drawn to him rather than be repelled? You would think that, but that's not the case. And John, again, 3, 19 and 20, tells us why. This is the judgment. This is the verdict that the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because the works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Jesus is the light, but people don't want the light. John himself had said, I am not the light, but he was placed in his position to point people to the light. And so, that's why, that's why people are not repelled by John the Baptist. But when Jesus comes into the scene, he comes as the light of the world who exposes the darkness of the human heart and its affections for the darkness. And when that is exposed, people in their true nature want 
the darkness and not the light. John cannot do that. John cannot expose the human heart like Jesus does. But thankfully, there are some who do believe and embrace the light. And those who do embrace and come to the light can be confident in this, that God is true. Those who believe in Jesus can be confident that God is a God of truth and that he speaks only words that are true. And how can they have such confidence? Verse 34 tells us, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. The messenger from the heavens, who is the message itself, the word of God, speaks only the words of God. John 12, 49, Jesus tells us, For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. But we can be confident in the words of Jesus because Jesus only speaks the words of God. And Jesus also has the affirmation of God the Father, which only increases our confidence in the messenger. Again, verse 34 tells us, For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For, or because he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father gives the Spirit to the messenger without measure, and that distinguishes him from God's past messengers. John the Baptist certainly had a measure of the Spirit of God. The prophets of old certainly had a measure of God's Spirit within them. Moses and Abraham and all others had a, a measure of the Spirit of God within them. But what makes Jesus a better messenger is that only Jesus has the Spirit of God without restriction. John the Baptist bore witness to this. He says in John 1.32, John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So never before has the Spirit of God descended and remained on an individual prior to Jesus Christ. Jesus must increase because he is supreme, because he has the Spirit of God without measure abiding with him. He comes from above and he has the, the fullest affirmation of God the Father. And secondly, we see the supremacy of Jesus Christ through the Father's affection for his Son. Verse 35 is incredibly significant. It tells us the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. So Jesus is supreme because he, because he comes from above, and that makes him above all. He only speaks the words of God, and if anyone hears him, it is hearing the very voice of God. Jesus is supreme because God's Spirit abides with him without any limitations, and Jesus is supreme because he is the object of the Father's love, and he has given all things into his hands. Not once, but twice, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, it tells us that 
God spoke loudly and clearly and said, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Once at the baptism and once at the transfiguration of Jesus. Jesus himself says in John 5 that the father loves the son. And here in verse 35, this is in Jesus talking, this is in John the Baptist talking. This is the apostle John talking. He knows very well and he wants to communicate to his readers that the Father loves the Son. And God doesn't say that about John Smith or Muhammad or the Buddha or anyone else who claims to have divine illumination from God. It tells us that the Father loves the Son. Right, and I get it. Right, God loves us. He sent his son to die on the cross for our sins. That God loves us is a glorious truth. But before God ever loved us, he loved his son. And the father's great love for the son is great news for us because it is through God's love for the son that we are saved. It has always been God's intention to display to the world his love for the son. And how would God the Father go about doing this? How would God the Father go about displaying his love for the Son? In Romans chapter 1, verse 4, it tells us that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. God intended to display the love of God for his son by making his name look great among the world, throughout the world. And in Ephesians 1.19, Paul's prayer for the church is that the church would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his, at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. Hebrews 1-2, I read this earlier, that in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he, that is God, appointed to be the heir of all things. God had appointed Jesus to be the heir of all things. So God had put all things under the feet of Jesus Christ in order to display to the world his incredible affection for his son. And it was, in, it was God's intent to spread the fame of the name of Jesus Christ to all the earth and to have all things seated above him, all authority and power and dominion and rule, in order to show his love for the son. And what would be the means of accomplishing such an incredible display of love by making Jesus the author of our salvation. Our relationship with God was severed because of our sins. It was an irreparable relationship. We were individuals who lived our lives with no regard to the God who created us. We were, thank, we were thankless, doing whatever pleased us. But God sent his son to die for us so that those who believe and follow him will be forgiven of their sins and receive eternal life. But God was not making a bargain with Jesus. He didn't come to the son and, and say, son, 
if you will die for these people, then I will make your name great and submit all these authority and power and dominion under you. If that was the case, then we would be the greatest object of the Father's love. Instead, it is because Jesus is the greatest object of the Father's love that he intended to make Jesus the heir of all things, to submit all things under the authority of Jesus Christ, and he would do so by sending him to be our Savior. So that is how God can display his affection for the Son and save us at the same time. Now, we're Trinitarian Christians, right? We believe that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are co-equal, co-eternal, all divine, all omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. So in, in other words, Jesus was already above all things just simply because of who he is. So then what do we mean by saying that Jesus is now in authority and that God means to display his love for the Son by putting him in this position of authority? Well, this is a difference in position that is sort of entitled God, or Jesus, God the Son, was certainly above all things because of who he is, that is God. But now he is reigning over all things as Savior, as the one who took on flesh, the one who was both God and man, as the one who is the Lamb of God slain for the sins of God's people, as the one who is the author and perfecter of his people. Hebrews 5, 7 says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, that is God's son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus has always been God. There's no question about that. And he has always been above all. But through his obedience to the point of death and through his resurrection from the dead, he now reigns as the lamb who takes away our sins. He now reigns as the author of our salvation. God appointed Jesus for this because he loves the Son. And we are loved through the Son. And that is why we exists to glorify Jesus Christ. If Jesus is the greatest object of the Father's affection and love, then we must always strive to be a Christ-centered church. I mean, Jesus has to be the center of our worship. Jesus has to be the center of our preaching. Jesus has to be the center of our lives. Jesus must be the one that we preach. That is why we say that that Jesus is the only way to the Father. He's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him because God had made it so. God loves the Son. And it is through the Son that we are loved. It is through the Son that we receive forgiveness and grace and mercy and eternal life and adoption as sons and his righteousness. It is also in, at the same time, it is also in seeing the Father's love for the Son that we also see the audacious crime of unbelief. 
verse 36 says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Don't miss the, the difference in word choices here. Right? He says, whoever believes and whoever does not obey. Now, why the difference? And I would argue that there isn't any difference at all, but rather it's essentially the same thing. Because to believe is to obey, and to obey is to believe. Essentially, essentially it, just, it boils down to what you love most. The Son is the object of the Father's greatest love. That means that Jesus must be the, our greatest love as well. It's not that we can't love anyone else, but our love for Jesus must take first priority. To believe in the Son means that you love the Son above all other things. And love is displayed through obedience. John 14, 15. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Then in verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. 1 John 2, 3 tells us, And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. To disobey the Son is not to believe in the Son. If you don't believe in the Son, then you do not love the Son. If God so loved the Son that he means to make much of him through the cross, that means that the world is not permitted to love anything else above Jesus Christ. To love anything or anyone else above the Son is the essence of idolatry, and God considers that a crime worthy of his personal and eternal wrath. Are you familiar with Jesus' parable about the wicked tenants? It's in Matthew 21. In short, a master plants a vineyard, leases it out to tenants, and then when uh, the harvest comes, when it's time to reap the benefits of his vineyard, he sends servants to the, the tenants. And what do the tenants do? They, they treat the master's servants shamefully. They dishonor them. They stone them. And then finally, the master of the vineyard sends his own son, expecting that surely they're going to respect him. And they don't. Instead, they kill him. The master expects that the people respect the son. And even more so, the master, God, expects the world to love the son because he had made him the heir of all things. He had made him the, the author of our salvation. So we have, we're not permitted to love anyone else above Jesus Christ. Jesus has the Father's fullest affirmation. He has the backing of God. God stands behind him, and he says, listen to him. Jesus has the Father's fullest affection and love, and he says to us that you are not permitted to love anything or anyone else above my beloved Son. And that is what makes Jesus so supreme. So then if Jesus is supreme because of the Father's affirmation and the Father's affection, then that means that we have to make sure that Christ remains central in our lives. So let me give you, by way of 
by way of application, let me give you three ways that we can practically keep center, keep Christ the center, and as our greatest love. And the first is obedience. John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Right, this perfect obedience is unattainable in this side of life. And I don't think, actually, I know that the Scriptures do not expect that we be perfect. And the kind of disobedience that verse 36 in John 3 is talking about is not a one-time or isolated act, but a, a pattern of disobedience. And so what the Lord is looking for is a pattern of obedience. How do you display your love to Jesus Christ by abiding in his, in his love? And how do you abide in the love of God? By having a pattern of obedience. So I ask, how's, how's your obedience? It's not a means of trying to earn the love of God, but you do so, you remain obedient because you love the Father. It all comes down to what you love most. It comes down to the affection, to the heart. I recently just started reading a book by William Law called A Serious Call to Devout and Holy Life, and it is a serious book. But one of the things that it says in the book, actually asks several questions like, why are we not pious enough? Why are we not holy? Why are we lacking in our holiness? Why aren't we praying enough? And his answer is that we don't intend for it. We don't intend to be more holy. We don't intend to be praying more. We don't intend to be in the Word more. We don't intend to walk more in a pattern of obedience. I tell you, I read that and I was like, oh, that's a cut to the heart. <laughs> because it's a problem of intention. If you desire more holiness in your life, if you desire to grow in your love for Jesus Christ, then what are you doing about it? It's a question of intention. The things that we love most, we're always intentional about doing because we find joy in them, because we like them. And the passage calls us to love Jesus Christ, abide in his love, and you will be intentional about, what, about that which you love most. And one of the commandments that the Lord calls us to do, and this is the second thing, is to love his people, love the church. John 15, 12, Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. Jesus wants us to bear fruit. And how do we bear fruit? By loving the Lord and by loving his people. was encouraging from the passage that he calls us friends because he tells us these things in his word. Things, mysteries that were once kept secret but are now revealed to us in his word through Jesus Christ. I call you friends. I love you. I died for you. And I command you to love one another. 
those who love Jesus as their greatest object of their affections will also love his people. That is why 1 John tells us that anyone who says that I know him but does not love but, the, but hates his brother does not know him and is a liar. Those who love God must also love his people because those who are God's people are they are God's people because Jesus Christ died for them. So when, then, when I look at you, when you look at me, when you look at one another, you're looking at, at another individual purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, someone who is dearly loved by God through the Son. And so we are not permitted to hate or even dislike one another. And how, and so how is that love displayed? How do you show love to one another? Do you love the bride of Christ? Are you in regular fellowship with this Christ in those opportunities where you have a chance to display that love to one another? And thirdly, we will increase in a love for God's people and keep Christ central simply by being with Jesus. I love Ezra 7.10. It says, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. There is, again, intention. You can say that Ezra intended to study the law of the Lord. Now, I'm not going to tell you how often you should be in the Word and in prayer, but when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. And so, Spend time with the Lord. Spend regular time with the Lord through his word and in prayer. Through the word of God is, is the means by which we know Jesus. This is how he reveals himself to us. This is how we can come to know him. This is how we can grow in our affections and in our love for Jesus Christ. Spend time with the one that you love. Have a steady diet of his word and meditate on his word. Jesus is our Savior, and therefore that is why we aim to glorify him, but even more so because he has the fullest affirmation of God the Father, and he also has the fullest affection of God the Father. And so then Christ should be the one that we love most. And in a time where there are competing desires and there's so many distractions in the world, it is important that we make every intention of keeping Christ central in our hearts. And that is how we glorify Jesus Christ. And that is how we glorify God. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we just admit to you, Lord, that we, that many times we fail in our worship simply because we fail to keep you the central of our hearts, the one who, is, who has captivated our hearts, the one who has our greatest affections. God, and you have made us individuals who get excited. We show excitement in, in being with one another. We show excitement in sports. Perhaps it's in it's in. In movies, perhaps it's in receiving gifts. But our greatest source of excitement and joy and love 
should be in Jesus Christ. Because he is our Savior. But not only because of that, but also because you tell us that you love. Because God the Father loves the Son. And he has given all things into his hands. And so therefore, Jesus must be central to our hearts because you, God, have made it so. You have declared it to be so. You have commanded it to be so. Help us to fight against the tendency to do that out of, out of a desire or an, or an, an aim to, to earn something from you. But work in our hearts, Lord, so that we genuinely and truly love you and that we will grow in greater and in greater love for you so that naturally in our hearts we would always be inclined to be with you, to talk with you, to talk about you, to pray to you. Help us, Jesus, because our flesh is weak. But I pray that you would strengthen us through your spirit who abides with us. We pray this in your name, Lord. Amen.